is Brandykins, and welcome to another episode of the Terrific Talk Podcast. This is episode 7. In this episode, I speak with Todd Cameron, who is the founder and creator of Outpost31.com, a fan website that was created in 2001 about John Carpenter's 1982 movie, The Thing. This was a live interview recorded on twitch.tv slash brandykins. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hello, everybody out there, and welcome to another fabulous, exciting episode of Terrific Talk. And tonight, I have with me a lovely gentleman here by the name of Todd Cameron, who is the founder and creator of Outpost31.com, a website dedicated specifically to John Carpenter's The Thing. So welcome, Todd. How are you this evening? I'm great, Brandy, and thank you for having me on your show. And thank you for coming on my show. I greatly appreciate you coming, taking time out of your busy evening to sit down and talk some some about your website and The Thing with me. I'm excited. For sure, yeah. Wow, this website I launched in 2001, so it's been 17 years last month we've been online. And uh, it's just gotten bigger and bigger every year. It's kind of crazy, especially since uh, we got on social media. Um, because originally we just had a message board, you know, that came with websites. And uh, since then, it's just exploded. And, uh, you know, there's so many fans of this movie out there doing so many awesome things. It's, it's almost overwhelming. I can't even keep up with it all, to be honest. So it's just like, oh, yeah, all that's happening. So it's in my purview. I see it. But... <laughs> Yeah, it's just like as humans, we can only keep up with so much at any one time. <laughs> yeah, and some fans are doing some pretty awesome projects. We have uh, we have our Facebook group, which has kind of exploded over the last uh, couple of years since I launched it. The Facebook page has been around for a while. We're on Twitter and Instagram. I try to post something every day, you know, that's because there's so much content right now, and it's just a really easy way to get it out there to the fans. Um, and it's mostly fan-driven. I mean, it's all coming from the fans themselves. They're doing really, really cool stuff. Um, you know, I guess the kind of the the, the, uh, the one of the biggest things that we're doing is is you know the 40th anniversary is coming up in in just over a few years. Oh, and, that's crazy! Um, yeah, we're planning a return trip to go back to the filming location in Stewart, British Columbia. Um, and there's a, there's a fan by the name of Peter Abbott who's uh, taken on this project to rebuild McCready's shack as a full-scale set piece on the location of where the movie was originally filmed in 1981. Um, so that's going to be done in the summer of 2002 on the 40th anniversary. Sorry, 2022. <laughs> yeah, we're going back to time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I keep, I keep thinking of the 20th anniversary and how big that was, 2002. You know, we had the video game came out, and there was a lot of stuff going on back then. I can't believe that was almost, you know, we're coming up on two decades ago. So. Yeah, I the movie is about as old as I am. Actually, I'm five days older than the movie. It came like, uh, it came out June 25th. I was born on June 20th, so I could say I'm five days older than the thing. Wow. Yeah, the years are just slipping by. I was just thinking the other day that you know we've we've hit the uh, what is it 36th anniversary this year. Um, you know, it's it's kind of crazy how uh, how fast it's going by. But amazing stuff is happening. I just uh, just on Halloween night this year. Uh, recorded a feature commentary for the film, which was a blast to do for yet another Blu-ray 4K release that's coming out of five-disc Blu-ray that's coming out in February of next year. So that was really, really fun to do. Ah, uh, 
IPA. And I remember also reading on your website that you have um, kind of jumping to that you have um, a, a novel in the works, Snowblind. Ah, uh, yes, good. yes, I do. Thank you for asking about that. Yeah. This is a project I kind of got the the inception for back in two thousand one. Um, it kind of sat on the back burner. It was I did a, a kind of a character bio um, for for McCready. And as the years went by, I really couldn't stop thinking about it. The backstory that could be built around this character, you know, that got this man to Antarctica in the winter of 1982. And I started working seriously about a year and a half ago on it and thinking about turning it into a full length novel. And I've been working pretty much full time uh, when, in, in my free time that I have on on this novel and um, planning to launch it in 20, about in about a year and a half or so. Um, you know, I, I don't have a deadline, so it's nice, but it's, it's become a heck of a project and, uh, it's probably my largest project aside from running Outpost 31 that I'm, that I'm doing for this film. So are you going to self-publish it or do you have a publishing company that's going to publish it for you? Uh, right. As it stands right now, I'm going to self-publish it for, you know, it is, it's for the fans, but it's a standalone novel. As you know, it's not a sci-fi horror, a novel, it's more adventure crime thriller because uh, it takes place before before the, the events in, in The Thing, um, you know, with McCready's past. Because there, there was a little bit of a, you know, the, the script had a little bit of a background on this, on, on the, all the characters, but not nothing in detail. You know, we knew that McCready was a Vietnam vet. Uh, he was kind of a loner, uh, an alcoholic, and, and kind of a, um, kind of the anti-hero. Um, but there, I decided there's so much more to this character if you put that all together and, and create a story around it, you know, a pretty interesting one, especially at that, in that era, you know, there's a period, period piece in the early 80s with so much going on in the world. Um, and, I, and, and a lot of the dates and situations and locations as I worked on the novel and started putting it together, everything kind of just fell into place beautifully. It was just almost too good to be true. You know? That has to be nice, like when you're writing something and all the pieces just fit perfectly together. Almost eerily so. So it was. Uh, I'm really excited to launch this project and, and see what fans think of it. Yeah, I will definitely be keeping my eye out for that because my favorite character, of course, is McCready. And right. I just really just found him just really fascinating, just especially just the way he stepped up into the position of leadership, even though he was kind of like uh, maybe a little hesitant about it at first, but he ended up being the best leader for like all the hell that was going on around them at the time. For sure. And you know, it's, it's John Carpenter's favorite movie of the movies he's, he's, he's made is, is the thing. Mm -hmm. And it's also Kurt Russell's favorite movie of the movies he's done as well. So I find that, that really cool that these, these men, you know, love this movie as much as we do. It's their favorite as well of their own creations. That, that is just so awesome to hear because I also remember reading uh, interviews with John Carpenter, uh, how the critiques, the, the negative critiques of the thing hit him as like the hardest out of like all the movies that he's done because he really wanted this to do so well. But then I kind of think of, well, he's got the last laugh. It's now a cult classic. Well, that's how a cult film becomes a cult film is it's got a, one of the one of the criteria is it's got a tank at the box office, which it did. I mean, it lost money and it didn't do too well. I think it. I think it stuck around in theaters for about two to three weeks and then it was gone. Um, and, you know, as we all know, it found its audience home video uh, in, in a few years after. That's where it really, really grew. And, and look where it is today. I mean, it's probably one of the top cult films in the world right now. You know, um, small, smaller budget film. I mean, it, I think it had a budget of just over $10, $10 million. Um, it, it did not make that back. And, you know, it, it I definitely, you know, 
Mr. Carpenter and, and the cast and crew, you know, it definitely impacted them. And the, the, the reviews were, were terrible for it when it came out. And since, though, since a few, I believe the, a few cr critics have uh, pulled their original review from 1982 and rewritten another one. And I don't, I don't know their names offhand, but a few of them have, have rewritten a, a new review of the film, you know, rewatching it years later. Oh, okay. So giving it, like, painting it in a little bit of a better light. Right, yeah, I think maybe they might, I don't know the reasons. I have no idea why this film had such a bad reception, not only from the critics, but the audiences at the time also didn't like the film, you know? So I don't know if it was the period of, that period, that summer of 82 with the other films that were coming out. I mean, that was one of the best years for movies ever, 1982. And, you know, we had, of course, E.T. came out, which was Universal's other alien movie. And, you know, what from I've read and heard over the years is that Universal loved et obviously it was a huge money maker for them and they just basically wanted to wrap the thing and get it done with you know especially you know that, those last few months on the thing for the cast and crew especially the, the crew there the special effects crew to wrap the sequences up and, and put it all together and edit it and, and create that final film it was kind of everything just kind of fell into place for them as well that it, it ended up working you know, with the final scenes in the movie with a couple of characters' deaths and the ending and all that. Yeah. They basically had to throw it together under a deadline from the studio, and it, and it just worked. Like, everything on that film worked. That's, what is it about John Carpenter's The Thing that makes you love it so much that you create a website specifically dedicated to it? And you know what? The answer to that question is everything. Um, you know, from the, the original novella, The Source Material by John W. Campbell, um, an amazing short story, hard, hard, you know, uh, uh, it's, I think it was escaping me now. I think it was written in 38, mm -hmm. um, you know, hard sci-fi for that that period. Um, the original material right through to build the next step would be Bill Lancaster's script, um, which is an unbelievable rendering of, of, of adaptation of the novella. Um, and then going on from that one step further is Alan Dean Foster's novelization on the script is also excellent, you know, which includes the, some, some key cut scenes, which they had to cut due to budget reasons from the film, which were incredibly spooky scenes, which were in the script and the novelization, which would have been amazing for Carpenter to have the time, you know, to shoot. I would love to have seen what to have seen what he would have done with that, give him another six months and another five million bucks back then. You know, what what could they have done with those scenes? Um, you know, I'm referring to the, the the ice chase sequence where one of the, the dogs escapes from the kennel. Yep. And also the the lights out sequence where they have this uh, whole whole thing where the generator is blown by the thing and the men are in the dark, you know, running around. It's incredibly spooky scenes. Ah, man, would have loved to see like more additions on those scenes. Because those were some of the creepiest scenes like in the movie. They were, and I wonder if there is more footage out there, you know, and I had a chance to meet and, and ask John Carpenter one question way back in, in 2001. Um, and that was, is there any more of the cut scenes? Because we've seen stills from these scenes, you know, we've seen photos, but there'd be love to see archive footage if we could, if it's gone, if it's not at this point lost forever. But uh, so far, nothing has come up other than what we've already seen. You know, the original Blu-ray that came out for the thing in September of 98. So we're going back, what is that, 20 years the, the DVD came out, more than 20 years ago. Um, had all the original Laserdisc bonus materials on it, which were phenomenal. I mean, that DVD was unbelievable. It's, by today's standards, it's even good. 
version of the, the Thing DVD that I have. I haven't really, like, taken the time to look at. I think it's that version, but I'm not completely positive. I can't think of, like, it offhand. Likely, yeah. yeah. There was a reissue in 2004 with new poster artwork for the cover cover artwork, which was, was, was pretty subpar. I mean, nothing beats Drew Struzan's, you know, glow face poster art and the story behind that. It, like your t-shirt right there yes <laughs> no nothing nothing beats that we actually fans were just i saw quickly when i was eating dinner tonight that fans were actually talking about the poster tonight and what's the best one and um you know I, in my opinion i think most fans opinion is that um that poster art drew Susan's artwork that apparently he banged out in one night <laughs> that, that's what <laughs> I, know. when i read that i was just like what it's almost just basically like i hate you you're so talented yeah, and I don't. He didn't even read the script. I think what I remember reading is they sent him like a little note that was a synopsis of of the plot and the script. So he didn't have any idea what the movie was about in detail. And they asked him to do this poster, and it came out unbelievable. I mean, I was so affected by the poster as well as when I originally saw the film for the first time. I was ten years old, and it was the following year that I actually got the poster for my bedroom. Um, so I really wanted it really badly and I got, everything kind of fell into place. I got lucky and we moved to uh, the Toronto area and this video store was giving the poster away. And I remember having to wait like two months to get it until they were taking it down. And I know I remember the first night putting it up in my bedroom. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, and I mean, I looked at it for years. It was in my bedroom for like 12 years then, you know, and, um, amazing, amazing artwork by, by that man. And he's done a lot of movie posters. So you said that you first saw the thing whenever you were 10 years old. Did you get your parents to take it or did you have to have someone else take it? <laughs> that, that is a good, good question story. Quick story about it. I saw it when I was 10. I, I'm almost positive it was the summer of 84. And I definitely saw it as a VHS rental. My uncle had rented it one weekend and watched it himself. And then he knew I liked horror movies. And he, the next day during the daytime, this was in the middle of summer, I remember it being a very hot heat wave summer day in Canada and I watched it in the basement in his, his, his dark basement and it terrified me. I mean, literally traumatized me, this movie. Um, my mom had come to pick me up after and I was too scared to even go up these stairs. You know what I mean? I just, just finished watching this entire movie at 10 years old back then. And I remember that afternoon kind of watched it during the day. Thank God it wasn't at night. <laughs> and I I remember coming out into the daylight and the heat of that day and being like just so relieved to kind of escape this movie um, and try to forget about it, which I couldn't. I couldn't stop thinking about it. And, uh, you know, I think I went swimming with my friends that afternoon, you know, on on a warm, hot, sunny summer afternoon, a complete contrast to what I just went through in the thing. Um, So that was my first time viewing it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. My first experience with horror was uh, accidentally seeing Hellraiser when I was six, and the guy getting pulled <laughs> apart by the chain. So that's what scarred me for life. I didn't see the thing till I was around uh, maybe 16, 17 years old. My mom's like, "You're gonna watch it." I'm very glad though that she made me watch it. <laughs> very cool. Yeah, it's our, it's you know, it's our older family that influences us to see these things. I watched a lot of horror as well because I loved it. Um, I, I have uh, drifted away from it as I've gotten older. Um, I do I do go back and rewatch the old horror that I grew up with. Um, but as for a genre right now, I've definitely drifted away from it. Um, it's not my go-to genre. I'll definitely go for other films first. Um, but I do appreciate the old horror. It's phenomenal. You know, some of it's fantastic. 
So you definitely just like stick with what you know rather than what's come out now. So what is it about horror now that makes you just be like, oh, I'm not a fan of it too much? You know, go back and look at movies like The Shining and Alien and Jaws and The Thing. And, and those are horror films, you know, that we grew up with. And, and some of them aren't really classified even as horror. Like, I don't know if Jaws would be, even be a horror film. Um, like, Jaws and The Thing, for me, are my two favorite films. And, and they're really character-driven, especially Jaws, is a character-driven oh, yeah movie and story um you know it's about those men on that boat and and the, the triangle between them all interacting and, and i i see that in the thing the thing didn't develop the characters as deeply um but for fans who know the movie we know those characters really well you know we know Nalls, we know mccready of course childs you know blair and 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 even the smaller characters you know like fuchs and windows i mean we really know them really well we feel like we do anyway and the thing, what's amazing, one of the things that's amazing about it is sci-fi horror film, yes, but also a mystery. The thing is a heavy, heavy mystery film, plot, story. I mean, we get an, just under two hours of screen time, and we see a, this film elapses six days. Those men are there, almost just shy of six days um, that, that the story takes place across. And more of what happens to these men happens off screen than we see on the film, in film. I mean, there's so much going on behind the scenes. Every every new scene that we see in the thing, so much has happened off screen. You know, with with for example, like McCready and Nalls going up to the shack. I mean, all that whole sequence we, with what would transpired with them up there. You know, Nalls finding the the shredded the shredded clothing of McCready's and cutting them loose of the line. You know, Child's disappearing. Um, the shadow on the wall. I mean, the big questions: Who got to the blood? Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. When I think of my favorite scene in the movie, it's always just like a go-to scene for me. It's just like whenever the blood test is just like, I don't know why I've always like gravitated like more towards that scene. And the scene that's still the hardest for me to watch is whenever the thing uh, attacks the dogs. I just, I can't handle that. (laughs) So what is your favorite scene in the thing? And what's a scene that is still hard for you to watch? Um, okay, my favorite sequence in the film is definitely when they let Nalls back inside. Um, when we, we really, as fans, started watching this movie, I guess in the late 90s, 99 is when everything kind of started to rock and roll online for the, the fans getting together, and that's going way back. Um, I think we only have a handful of those people around still. Because um, there was an original fan site for the thing that I found online in the fall of 99. It's long gone, unless anybody can find it. I'd love somebody to find it with like a way back you know the internet way back thing uh-huh. um i haven't been able to find it but it was an australian fan who made what i would call the original fan site for the movie um i found it was blown away by it it had a message board and that's where i first started but he abandoned it and no longer updated it and then a year went by and then in 2001 i launched outpost31.com um how do i get on this topic we we're talking about favorite sequence yes, <laughs> um, yes. So my favorite sequence is is uh, when they let Nalls back inside and the men are grouped around in the foyer and deciding whether or not to let McCready back in when he when he comes back. Um, and, and as a fan, knowing that scene and knowing who's at that point is an imitation or not, and we know both both um, Norris and uh, Palmer are at that point not human, and just watching that whole, the dialogue, the acting. If you watch the acting in this movie, the background acting too, when you're watching the scenes in the thing, watch the actors in the background. 
and they're acting as opposed to the who's doing the dialogue up in the front of the screen. You know, you've got actors back there like like T.K. Carter, who does a phenomenal job in this movie. One of the youngest actors in the film, and he he knocks it out the park in every single scene he's in. You know, as as Nalls, he's fantastic. Um, and then Thomas Waits, Thomas G. Waits, who plays Windows, um, and, and that whole sequence with those men around that door, debating and arguing whether or not to open it, let him in, and then of course McCready finds his own way in through the window. Um, <laughs> that whole sequence is is probably one of the most tense and and. Uh, a second one I think would be with is the pivot point in the movie, and that's when they first realize that one of them is no longer human, and that's when they find the blood sabotage. That's when the, the paranoia, the lack of trust, and the fear kind of amplifies because that's when the men know that somebody now is no longer human. Uh, are there are any scenes that are still like really like hard for you to watch, or are you kind of case hardened now? <laughs> uh, I pretty pretty hardened out on the film. Um, I try not to see the goofs at this point, and I made a point on the commentary on Halloween night to not talk about the goofs because now I see them. You know, once you, once you see them, you can't unsee them, and there's a lot of them. Like any movie has probably a large number of goofs, and unfortunately, I you know I know them all in the thing. So I I try to watch the film, you know, about once a year, and not let the goofs affect me. Um, there's nothing I, I fans say. What would you change? You know, there's not anything we'd want to ever change. Um, but I'm pretty hardened. You know, it, it doesn't, unfortunately, at this point, and it doesn't really affect me at all. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> like I said, the dog seems, I guess I just can't stand dogs whining, so that's why that still, like, affects me, because that sound, I'm just like, no! And then just whatever, that would also, but then what happens after, I guess, is also, like, my favorite, whenever the alarm sounds, and um, Clark is like, I don't know what's in there, but it's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> they just like see it for the first time they're just like what the hell just that initial reaction like am i actually seeing this is this really happening and even when child's like first comes in with the flamethrower and he's just like that initial like hesitation where you're just like I, am i actually seeing this yeah that's an that's our first you know first look at the alien and that's actually stan winston and his whole crew who did the who did the kennel thing um rob bokeen was not part of that um that's the only effect sequence that he didn't work on. Um, and um, what was I going to say about that scene with the kennel? Um, you know, that's our first look at it. Stan Winston did it. And, uh, you know, all of the big, the big effects pieces, of course, it's an effects-driven movie, especially for when it came out. You know, everything we're looking at, no CGI, obviously. It's all happening on screen as we're, we're looking at it happen. Yes, I know that is amazing. I still think that 80s effects, especially like uh, effects like you mentioned in films like Alien, Jaws, and The Thing, to me, they still hold up to this day. Of course, some effect, 80s effects are admittedly cheesy, like we could admit that, but to me, I just look at those effects as just like, wow, they could do all that just without CGI. That's pretty amazing. Right, and you wonder if they put more time and money into practical effects now, what they could actually look like, and you know, we had that whole thing with the other the other film, Har Harbinger Down, where they tried to do that, and then you know put put, and the prequel, of course, where they tried as well and put CGI over the practical effects. You know, and, uh, and effects are hard. Like I think Carpenter made a good decision to pull the. Oh. How's that? Hi. Yeah, I don't know what happened there. <laughs> yeah. No, it just quit. Yeah, just like. 
We were talking about special effects, and all of a sudden, I guess Skype's like, you don't get to talk about special effects. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's end... Skype, it happens. Yeah, end call, beep. Okay, I don't remember where we left off about special effects. I think we were talking about the sequence in the kennel, but I don't remember. Yeah, just saying how I think we we're saying how, uh, oh, the, the stop motion uh, sequence, that they were going to have the Blur Monster sequence a little longer. And uh, we can watch that footage on the uh, the uh, the extras on the, the DVD, the original DVD, a Terror Takes Shape documentary. You can find it on YouTube now really easily. Um, <clears throat> you get a chance to see what they cut out of the film. And, you know, it does look a little glitchy. And, you know, Car Carpenter wasn't happy with it. He thought it was subpar. And they, they cut it. And I agree with that. And, you know, with, with how they ended the film, you know, it worked out really well for them. They had to move quickly on some stuff. Again, they were under some pressure with, with financial and budget on the film and also with time. Um, you know, Universal was actually pushing them to get it out and get it released. Um, and they kind of moved quickly with, like, with the death of Gary and Nalls. You know, that stuff seemed like it was pretty hurry, hurried, but it worked out really well for them. You know, it, you know, it was really spooky to have Nalls walk off and that was it, you know, and... Yeah, I love in a, um, horror, horror, especially as a genre, to where you don't have to explain, like, everything and just, like, all the backstory. Just, like, well, what's his motivation? Like, where did he go off to? Like, where did this monster come from outer space? And why was it frozen in the ice for 100,000 years? Like, we don't really need to know all that because we could just get right to it. That's what I love about it. Yeah, there was going to be a whole other effect sequence, another big one with Nalls being attacked and assimilated and pulled under the ice in the, in the generator room floor. And it didn't need it. You know, it was spooky enough the way it was just with him disappearing. I mean, obviously, you know, when McCready calls for the men down the, down the hallway down there and they don't reply, I mean, something is wrong. And that's even spookier when with no reply. Yeah, it's just, ah! I could go on about this movie forever, but let's get to your website, Outpost31.com. You said that you created it in 2001 after um, after this um, initial fan site kind of in 1999 uh, disappeared. So talk a little bit just about your website, like what's on it, like what kinds of information people can find if they want to look at it. Well, it's... Pretty much, there's a fair bit of stuff on there now. The the website I redid in last summer for the 35th anniversary, I rebuilt the website, which took quite a bit of time to do, um, and kind of streamlined it down a little bit because it was growing over the over the years and the decade plus that it went by. It was getting way too big on an older platform, way too hard to manage. So I, I whittled it down, made it much more uh, navigable and streamlined, and so people could find the content a lot easier. And we were kind of going to decide to use social media platforms to share all the fan content. I'm trying to post everything that a fans have done for this film on a website nowadays. You just can't do. Um, there's just way too, too much. Um, and there was too much. You know, even with the fan fiction and fan essays that we had up, a few fans have asked where those have gone. We still have them all, everything that people have submitted over the years. Um, we are going to try when, when I get them going here and get those back up as a library as well. Um, the new platform is really easy to work with, so you can add stuff very quickly. Um, but yeah, it's been online since October 2001. Um, you know, we covered the video game quite a bit when it came out in 2002 on the 20th anniversary. Um, that I guess I'm not a gamer, but I guess that game is quite dated at this point, possibly. Um, 
Okay. I only played it uh, maybe one or two times, to be completely honest. Um, and it was interesting. It was cool that they did it. Um, on the 30th anniversary, which would, would have been 2007, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, 2007, I think. Um, went down to Orlando, Florida, which isn't too far from where I am right now, where I'm living. And uh, got to see the the haunt the Universal Studios Halloween Horror Nights did a haunted walkthrough um, of kind of Outpost 31, which was really really cool. They did a fun oh. job with that. That would have been awesome to like go through. Was it the Outpost 31 kind of like after it was burned down or before? I think it was actually, if I remember right, it's been a while. It was 2007, so it was 11 11 years ago. Okay. Um. No, I'm sorry. That would have been the 25th anniversary then. 25th anniversary 11 years ago. Universal Studios Halloween Horror Nights. It was called, I think it was just called The Thing. Um, it was kind of like a research facility where they brought brought the frozen bodies of McCready and Childs. Uh-huh. And obviously one of them was an alien for their for their walkthrough. Whether or not they are, that's you know that's up for debate. We can talk about that later maybe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But and I guess it had gotten out, and it was kind of like there was there was kennels there. It was pretty creepy. They did a pretty good job with that. Uh, that would have been just so awesome to see. So I'm a little jealous of you as far as that goes. <laughs> so it's good that you had the chance to go see that. Okay, now let's go ahead. Let me slide into that debate. Okay, so the ending. It has been a source <laughs> of contention among th fans of the thing for years. Like. Who is the thing? Was Charles the thing? Was McCready the thing? Were they both the thing? It's like, did McCready actually give Childs gasoline? And he was struggling oh, because Charles drank gasoline. So what are your thoughts on the ending? Like, so in your mind, well, how, how did it go down? There's two possibilities. Uh, they're either both human or one of them is an imitation. They can't both be imitations or they, or they wouldn't be sitting there having that conversation. That would be kind of pointless. Um, I don't know if I should really go into this too, too much because I'm working on another project that's going to come out after Snowblind called Fragments of the Outpost, which is what it is, is 12 short stories that fills in the gaps, the missing pieces of the story we see in the thing. So, I mean, everyone's got their own theories, right? There's that gasoline theory. There's the different coat color theory with Childs. There's the no breath theory. You know, McCready has breath. Childs doesn't have breath. Um, you know, I think that's a lot of fans, you know, just coming up with their own ideas and seeing stuff that they want to see. Um, I got to be blunt and say a lot of the evidence obviously points to Childs being an imitation. I mean, he goes he goes missing. You know, he leaves the door open. Why would he leave the door open? You know, if you saw Blair out in the store and went looking for him, you wouldn't leave the door to the, to the outpost wide open like that, not in what would be an Antarctic winter night in a blizzard. Um... You know, he has a weak excuse when he comes back, and it's clear that McCready doesn't believe him with, with the chuckle he gives when he asks where he was. You know, where were you, Childs? Um, so I, I, I would have to, you know, I definitely changed my opinion over the years that, you know, the evidence really points to Childs not being human any longer. You know, especially with that shot with the door open and panning down the stairs where Blair was. I mean, Blair was down in the basement, you know, with now Gary and Nalls also being taken over down there. I mean, the thing was running around behind the scenes quite a bit in this movie. And if you run the movie together 
with the filling in the background scenes, you know, especially one of the interesting scenes is this, is the blood. Is that night that the blood is sabotaged, and they not they lock Blair uh, they lock Blair in the tool shed that morning. Um, that's right when they find the blood is sabotaged. Um, a lot had transpired the night before, and then through the night, and then that morning for the, all that to happen. Right? We know Windows drops the keys. Yeah. Um, there's a very loud sound effect of him dropping the keys when he discovers um, Benning's being taken over by the Norwegian thing in the in the supply room. Um, so it's kind of interesting because somebody would have had to something would have had to grab those keys. Right, a non-human person would have would have needed to use them, and we always hypothesize one of two people, Norris or Palmer, at that point, depending on who you believe the shadow on the wall was. Um, so at one point, we literally had three things together all at the same time in that supply room. You know, when we start thinking about this stuff, hmm, you know, they were all working in cahoots together at some points. You know, Fuchs is definitely, in my opinion, uh, uh, murdered. Um, uh, by by one of the things I've got a short story out there called Fuchs Demise, which is just you know one. I wrote that back in, way back you know 15 plus years ago, and I thought, what that's one scene. What if I did a collection of them all for each scene, you know the blood, the shadow, childs, and put them all together. That sounds also really fascinating. I'm looking forward to seeing that come to fruition and I'm definitely interested in Snowblind that you mentioned earlier in the podcast when it comes out because the idea behind that is just like so fascinating to me. Thanks. Yeah, regardless of my love of McCready aside, it just sounds really fascinating. It's like, who is McCready? Right. Right. He's definitely, definitely a loved and iconic character. You know, I'm trying to think of others like Ash from Evil Dead and um... You know, uh, Martin Brody, chief of police, Amity Island from Jaws. Um, you know, he's just iconic, iconic film character. Now, what is your favorite memory related to the thing? Like, um, it could be like a time maybe you met some of the actors, or um, I don't know if you visited the film set before, or, um, but like, what's your favorite memory associated with the thing? My absolute favorite memory with the thing is you hit the nail right on the head was in the summer of 2003, a fan by the name of Steve Crawford, who's now since passed away 10 years ago uh, this week. Um, and I went up to the filming location and we found the site, the first first fans to be there and find it. And we kind of struck gold. We hit the jackpot because not only did we find the site where we could still see where they bulldozed the area flat to build the movie set that summer of 81, um, we found remains of the camp everywhere, burned, blown up, scattered everywhere. And then the, kind of the uh, piece de resistance was the Norwegian chopper record was sitting right where it should be. And uh, as you know, we found all that and we brought the rotor blade home. Uh, we ended up having it cut cut, cut up there and, and we each brought half of it home, which was super, super cool. That was That's the highlight of my whole experience with this film. You know, I think I've gotten more out of this film than the people who worked on it at this point and, and starred in it. And, you know, because, I mean, they worked on it for one or two years. And, and this has been like a 20-year-plus journey for me at this point. So, um, you know, I've spent more time on the film now than they have. So <laughs> it's definitely, you know, probably 10 times over. So it's it's been pretty interesting, um, you know, to spend four days up there on the set and uh, um, or the filming location and find remains of the set. And as you know, we're planning to go back. We've got 116 fans signed up to go back 
to the filming location on the 40th anniversary, and that's going to be in June of 2022. So, as you know, they filmed the movie in the wintertime, uh-huh. um, built the set in the summer. So we're going to go up in the summer, obviously, because you can't even get to the site in the winter right now, because the only reason they could get up there, as you know, is because of the Grand Duke mine was open and they were plowing the road twice a day, every day. Um, you can't do that now. You can't even get up there. Yeah. I, I could imagine your reaction whenever you saw just the remains of that set, because I would have been like, oh, yeah! <laughs> You know what? We were blown away. It was a surreal, surreal trip. The experience was unbelievable. We couldn't believe where we were, like where we actually got to. You know, it took us two days to get there. You know, I left from the Toronto, Canada area. Steve, I believe, left from South uh, Carolina. He lived Greenville, South Carolina. I hope I'm right on that. And he, you know, we both met in Vancouver, British Columbia. We hopped on a, you know, a six-seater prop plane and flew two and a half hours north from Vancouver to Terrace, British Columbia, where we rented a SUV. And then we drove six hours north from there to the town, Stuart and Hyder. And when we got in, they recommended to us that we just go and find it right away that first night. So we talked to a few people and then we kept on going. We drove straight up the mining road that first day, same day. And, you know, the sun was going down. It was August. So the days were very long up there. I think it would have been like five o'clock by the time we got up to the actual site. And this is from getting up at five in the morning to catch a flight out of Vancouver. And we pushed on, went up and found the site the first day. And I'm glad we did because had we have not done that and found it only the second day, we never would have got the rotor blade home. We needed to find it the first night so that we could go back prepared the second day with the stuff that we needed to get the rotor because we needed to go by like, a hacksaw and rope and all this kind of stuff. So uh, it was a true, true adventure to go up there and do that and and just be where we were, you know, literally on, on the edge of Salmon Glacier with in the mountains. Um, God knows how high above sea level we were there. I don't know what the elevation is. Um, you know, well, Stewart sits at sea level because it's, it's a port city. Um, but then you, the whole way up is up the road, right? It just keeps going up and up and up. Man, I, yeah, I can imagine just you seeing that, that, that beautiful view and then the rotor blade having to get that home, say, we're getting that home, dang it. I don't care if we have to, like, hack it up into 20 pieces. Oh, <laughs> uh, it was an adventure, I tell you. Like, literally, we came back that second day. Uh, we had to go to a hardware store that morning, the next morning, and pick up some stuff we needed. And uh, we bought a hacksaw, and we had to hacksaw through the six to eight inches of whatever they make helicopter rip rotor blades out of i mean it's lighter material for aircraft but it's still heavy as heck and i mean we had to cut through it and then cut it in two pieces and then um get it in the truck well, actually we put it in the truck as one piece so we got we cut it off of the, the 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 assembly like the drive assembly and then we put it in the suv carried it up this hill the, the road that they built to, to drive down and build the movie set and then we had it in the suv so we had it on the front dash sticking over the back and then out the back because it was 15 feet um so I guess a full-length blade of a chopper would be 30 feet from end to end. Um, so it wasn't little. You know, it was a big piece. Uh, man, jealous again. <laughs> because that would have had to, I can imagine that was just, oh, 
wonderful, like you said, just a wonderful experience for you. A nice little uh, bit of trivia that you can, that you have whenever someone asks you, you'd be like, well, I got to visit the site of the thing, like where they filmed it. And apparently a lot of fans want to go back. I mean, we had an, we've only had two fa fans go up twice, Steve and I in 03. And then uh, Peter Abbott went up with his uh, girlfriend, fiance in September of 2016. So just over two years ago. So, I mean, in all of these 36 plus years, only fans have been there twice to see the site because it's so remote, you know. Mm -hmm. I've read about other filming sites like Martha's Vineyard for Jaws, which is basically a whole almost tourist attraction now. Um, I guess there was a cabin for Evil Dead somewhere in Tennessee, was it? Yep. I and and count, countless other movie sites, you know, like The Stairs and Exorcist. It goes on and on. But The Thing is not something you can just, you know, dr dr drive to in a, in a day's drive if you wanted to. You know, I think it's from here. If I just left, it'd be like a five-day drive to get there, six-day drive to get there. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, it takes a certain amount of dedication to get up there. Yeah, up there. minimum, realistically, minimum two flights. And, you know, and Peter did it coming from the UK. So, I mean, he flew to Canada, then he flew to Vancouver, Toronto, Vancouver, Terrace, and then drove up, you know. So, to come from somewhere like the UK or Australia to, to go and see that site, I mean, it's another whole step, right? At least you and I are on this on the right continent to start with. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, well, we're about halfway there, so... Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. We're almost there. Yeah. Okay, so I'm looking at the time, and I wanted to make sure that I keep to like the 45 minutes. So we're at about uh, 43 minutes now. So we may have time for one question from my community. But while we're waiting for that, why don't you tell people where they could find you um, on social media and you know, your website? Obviously, is outpost31.com. But where could people find you um, otherwise? Uh, the first place to go, of course, is the website, outpost31.com. And then from there, all of our social media uh, is linked right from the header, header bar in the website. You know, our, for a discussion group, uh, the Facebook group is now our number one place where fans go to chat about the film, post about ideas, post uh, stuff they've created from cosplays to artwork to uh, you name it. Like what fans have and haven't done for this movie is just, you know, it's incredible. Um and then, of course, we're on Twitter and Instagram and the Facebook page where I, I try to post something. Um, you know, one of the standout things that I see on a daily basis, I pick something and try and get it up there so fans can see it and link back to the, the creator in, in, in some in some way to give them credit because there's so much, so much cool stuff. Yeah, yeah the artwork that fans post, and it's just amazing. I, I tend to look at it almost on a daily basis, just like, why are you all so talented? <laughs> Well, we've had two board games come out in the last year. Uh, Who Goes There? Mm -hmm. um, and then the Infection at Outpost 31 board yeah. games. We had the Thing art book that came out. To, uh, and we've had a Blu-ray. We've had a Blu-ray. Uh, the UK one by Arrow. The Scream Factory Blu-ray from the, the US release. And Germany is releasing a, um, like I said, just did the commentary for it on Halloween night, which was really fun and cool to do. Um, they have their own five-disc Blu-ray 4K coming out in February of 2019. So lots of still exciting stuff to look forward to, like to in the future. I really feel the best for this film is is yet to come, and you know I really have to bite my tongue because I'm I, I'm sworn to secrecy. Yeah. Uh, but there, you know, fans be ready. There is still stuff coming from this film. You know, not only fan-created stuff and our trip in 2022. 
We've got Peter Peter doing the, uh, the McCready Shack on the filming location. We've got another fan up in Toronto by the name of um, Jim Means, who's recreating a full-size set of the rec room seen in the movie. And I was very fortunate to meet Jim and Peter. Uh, a year and a half ago in New Jersey, we went to Monster Mania, where we all met. We met uh, five of the cast, and one of the standout events from that weekend had nothing to do with the, the, the con we went to was Jim and I went and Jim bought the heat wave pinball game that you see in the movie so frequently in the rec room. He found and bought in, happened to be in that city where we were cherry Hill, like just outside of cherry Hill near Philadelphia. Um, you know, he bought the pinball game, the heat wave pinball game from like 1964 version of it. The one you, not the actual screen used one, oh, okay. um, but, but the one, but the same one right uh, that you, you see in the movie um you know he's got the asteroids game he's gonna do he's got it all framed out the, the scale size you know the bar uh the couches the uh, little desk they had the, the ping pong table you know he's doing a full-size indoor interior set piece of the movie which is the rec room which is one of the the main sets in the film amazing yeah so I I'm looking so forward to like the things that are coming just like in the future for the thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely think the best is yet to come. You know, I want to launch and get this novel out so fans can can read it, you know, as well before we do the 2022 trip. And, uh, you know, uh, Jim and, and Peter were, are going to do their set pieces. You know, I'm planning to be up there 100 percent for sure uh, for the trip in 2022 to, to help, you know, build McCready's shack and. Um, you know, I helped Peter out originally at the beginning to do a lot of work and on putting it, putting that whole, basically getting that whole idea going. You know, uh, the first thing we needed to do was contact the BC government and uh, make sure we had permission that we could build on that site again. And they, they, they basically told us the same thing they told Universal Studios is yes, as long as when you're done, you take everything with you, which Universal pretty much did. They left a little bit behind, but. <laughs> maybe 85 percent of it so, so that's we're good. probably pretty accurate <laughs> <laughs> i well it doesn't look like there are any questions but someone did say this was a great podcast and that they enjoyed it immensely and i'm very happy to hear that and uh as always as, as always like all good things must come to an end unfortunately but once again um todd i want to thank you very much for taking time out of your evening to come and talk about the thing and your website and what the future holds like for the movie like i greatly appreciate it okay cool thank you for having me on brandy it's always always a blast to talk about the thing and what i can say to fans as we, we sign off here is stay tuned because the best things are yet to come right. have a good evening sir thanks brandy bye-bye bye, -bye. bye. Uh, that was such a nice podcast it was it's really cool to talk to fans of horror and fans of the thing i tend to fangirl a lot about this movie as you well know and it is really nice to see fans of the thing other fans of the thing that i can talk to and it's so great all right, so I'm going to end the stream on a little bit of chatting time. I mean, this is not um, this is not like a stream stream. This is a podcast day. No, it's okay. It's okay. He was still like happy to hear that. Um, 
I want to thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Terrific Talk. If you have any questions or suggestions for future podcasts, please contact me on my personal Twitter at BrandyKins1982 or on my podcast Twitter at Terrific Talk. I will see you all next time and stay scary. Bye now.